Book One, Chapter One of the History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Pompey the Little, or the Life and Adventures of a Lapdog, by Francis Coventry. Book One, Chapter One. A Panegyric Upon Dogs, Together with Some Observations on Modern Novels and Romances. Various and wonderful, in all ages, have been the actions of dogs, and were I to collect, from poets and historians, the many passages that make honorable mention of them, I should compose a work much too large and voluminous for the patience of any modern reader. But as the politicians of the age and men of gravity may be apt to censure me for misspending my time in writing the adventures of a lapdog, when there are so many modern heroes whose illustrious actions call loudly for the pen of an historian, it will not be amiss to detain the reader in the entrance of this work with a short panegyric on the canine race to justify my undertaking. And can we, without the basest ingratitude, think ill of an animal that has ever honored mankind with his company and friendship from the beginning of the world to the present moment? while all other creatures are in a state of enmity with us, some flying into woods and wildernesses to escape our tyranny, and others requiring to be restrained with bridles and fences in close confinement, dogs alone enter into voluntary friendship with us, and of their own accord make their residence among us. Nor do they trouble us only with officious fidelity and useless goodwill, but take care to earn their livelihood by many meritorious services. They guard our houses, supply our tables with provision, amuse our leisure hours, and discover plots to the government. Nay, I have heard of a dog's making a syllogism, which cannot fail to endear him to our two famous universities, where his brother logicians are so honored and distinguished for their skill in that useful science. After these extraordinary instances of sagacity and merit, it may be thought too ludicrous, perhaps, to mention the capacity they have often discovered for playing at cards, fiddling, dancing, and other polite accomplishments. Yet I cannot help relating a little story which formerly happened at the playhouse in Lincoln's Inn Fields. There was, at that time, the same emulation between the two houses as there is at present between the two great republics of Drury Lane and Covent Garden, each of them striving to amuse the town with various feats of activity, when they began to grow tired of sense, wit, and action. At length, the managers of the house of Lincoln's Inn Fields, possessed with a happy turn of thought, introduced a dance of dogs, who were dressed in French characters to make the representation more ridiculous, and acquitted themselves for several evenings to the universal delight and improvement of the town. But one unfortunate night, a malicious wag behind the scenes threw down among them the leg of a fowl, which he had brought thither in his pocket for that purpose. Instantly all was in confusion. The Marquis shook off his peruke, Mademoiselle dropped her hoop petticoat, the fiddler threw away his violin, and all fell to scrambling for the prize that was thrown among them. But let us return to graver matter. If we look back into ancient history, we shall find the wisest and most celebrated nations of antiquity, as it were, contending with one another, which should pay the greatest honor to dogs. 
the old astronomers denominated stars after their name, and the Egyptians in particular, a sapient and venerable people, worshipped a dog among the principal of their divinities. The poets represent Diana as spending great part of her life among a pack of hounds, which I mention for the honour of the country gentlemen of Great Britain. And we know that the illustrious Theseus dedicated much of his time to the same companions. Julius Pollux informs us that the art of dyeing purple and scarlet cloth was first found out by Hercules's dog, who, roving along the sea-coast, and accidentally eating of the fish murex or purpura, his lips became tinged with that color, from whence the hint was first taken of the purple manufacture, and to this lucky event our fine gentlemen of the army are indebted for the scarlet, with which they subdue the hearts of so many fair ladies. But nothing can give us a more exalted idea of these illustrious animals than to consider that formerly in old Greece they founded a sect of philosophy, the members whereof took the name of cynics, and were gloriously ambitious of assimilating themselves to the manners and behavior of that animal from which they derived their title. And that the ladies of Greece had as great a fondness for them as the fair ones of our own isle may be collected from the story which Lucian relates of a certain philosopher, who in the excess of his complaisance to a woman of fashion took up her favorite lapdog one day, attempting to caress and kiss it but the little creature, not being used to the rude grip of philosophic hands, found his loins affected in such a manner that he was obliged to water the sage's beard, as he held him to his mouth, which so discomposed that principle, if not only seed of his wisdom, as excited laughter in all the beholders. Such was the reverence paid to them among the nations of antiquity, and if we descend to later times, neither there shall we want examples of great men's devoting themselves to dogs. King Charles the Second, of pious and immortal memory, came always to his council board accompanied with a favorite spaniel, who propagated his breed and scattered his image through the land almost as extensively as his royal master. His successor, King James, of pious and immortal memory likewise, was distinguished for the same attachment to these four-footed worthies, and tis reported of him that being once in a dangerous storm at sea, and obliged to quit the ship for his life, he roared aloud with a most vehement voice, as his principal concern, to save the dogs and Colonel Churchill. But why need we multiply examples? The greatest heroes and beauties have not been ashamed to erect monuments to them in their gardens, nor the greatest wits and poets to write their epitaphs. Bishops have entrusted them with their secrets, and prime ministers deigned to receive information from them, when conspiracies were hatching against the government. Islands likewise, as well as stars, have been called after their names, so that I hope no one will dare to think me idly employed in composing the following work, or if any such critic should be found, let him own himself ignorant of ancient and modern history, let him confess himself an enemy to his country, and ungrateful to the benefactors of Great Britain. And as no exception can reasonably be taken against the dignity of my hero, much less can I expect any will arise against the nature of this work, in this life-writing age especially, when no character is thought too inconsiderable to engage the public notice, or too abandoned to be set up as a pattern of imitation." 
the lowest and most contemptible vagrants, parish girls, chambermaids, pickpockets, and highwaymen, find historians to record their praises, and readers to wonder at their exploits. Stargazers, superannuated strumpets, quarreling lovers, all think themselves authorized to appeal to the public, and to write apologies for their lives. Even the prisons and stews are ransacked to find materials for novels and romances. Thus we have seen the memoirs of a lady of pleasure, and the memoirs of a lady of quality, both written with the same public-spirited aim of initiating the unexperienced part of the female sex into the hidden mysteries of love, only that the former work was rather a greater air of chastity, if possible, than the latter. And I am told that illustrious mimic Mr. F-T, when all other expedients fail him, designs, as the last effort of his wit, to oblige the world with an accurate history of his own life, and which view one may suppose he takes care to checker it with so many extraordinary occurrences, and selects such adventures as will best serve hereafter to amaze and astonish his readers. This, then, being the case, I hope the very superiority of the character here treated of, above the heroes of common romances, will procure it a favorable reception, although perhaps I may fall short of my great contemporaries in the elegance of style and graces of language. For when such multitudes of lives are daily offered to the public, written by the saddest dogs, or of the saddest dogs of the times, it may be considered as some little merit to have chosen a subject worthy the dignity of history, in which single view I may be allowed to paragon myself with the incomparable writer of the life of Cicero, in that I have deserted the beaten track of biographers, and ventured to snatch a laurel, unde prius nulli velerunt tempora musso. Having detained the reader with this little necessary introduction, I now proceed to open the birth and parentage of my hero. End of Book One, Chapter One